Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Stephen Casado, is a one-man crew. He has learned how to do every part of the job himself. He's a creator, a host, a cameraman, an editor, the food stylist, a photographer, and a culinary director of Not Another Cooking Show. The food freak, Stephen Casado, welcome. Yeah, I want to know like how all of your former training has stacked upon itself to get you to where you are now. You just graduated in 2008. You had a bit of a corporate stint and now you are full-time YouTubing, right? Yes. Uh, I guess my story goes back to college, right? I studied marketing and my father was worked had worked in advertising for like 35 years. So I just sort of like, I was more of a business mind, you know, I went to business school. And so I figured I would just follow my father's footsteps. And so when I graduated in 2008 in the financial crisis and, you know, that whole mess, uh, at the same time, social media was like becoming a thing. It was like maturing a little bit. So that was dis- disrupting advertising. And so I was like, my dad was like watching Mad Men at the time. He's like, I love it. And I'm like, I'm like watching it. I'm like, is this it? Like, and I, I'd grown up going to his office and he's like playing with Nerf guns and stuff like that. So I had this glorified sort of vision or version of advertising that I had in my head that was like dead by the time I had entered it. And it would, at that time, they were sort of struggling to like figure out what their industry was in a world where social media was becoming popular and reaching people there was a new way to reach people was emerging and so I saw that and I was trying to get the agency I was working with involved in like social media but they were like kind of stuck in their heyday in the 90s and I was at the time like you know I was trying to get raises I worked there for three years and I I got a three thousand dollar raise and I was making like thirty thousand dollars at like when I got hired so like all I kept hearing was like hey hang in there maybe in like three months, six months, we can talk again. And I'm just like, you know, going crazy at that point. But I got into food at the same time and I started cooking for myself. I started to learn how food was produced in America, sort of like a a shocking revelation, you know, not like those sunny pastures that you see on like milk cartons. On the cereal boxes, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a gross reality. You know, that was sort of a, a reality check. And so my reaction to that was to learn how to cook, right? So I was like, maybe that gives me the most control over that in a world that I didn't really like find too appetizing at the time. And so I would go home after my advertising job and started like a blog called The Food Freak, which was at the time there was no video that was like kind of expensive and hard for a t- a, like a, you to do on computers at the time. But cameras were sort of widely available. And in cookbooks, it was printing. It was too, still too expensive to print. 
like lots of photos in a cookbook. And I, I loved cookbooks, but like uh, I'm dyslexic, right? So I'd read and it's kind of like blank stare. And I'm like, just show me the thing. Just show me a picture. And so I started to like make things in the sake of like learning, right? Like they weren't in the sake of teaching. It was like, this is what I'm doing. And I took photos of every step of the way. So you could actually follow along as like how I cut a thing and, you know, what it should look like at each stage. And I posted that and kind of like developed my skills there. It was nice to be able to like do a thing, have it documented, be like, mm, I could do that differently. You know, if I did that again, I can like, you know, it's a way to actually get better instead of it was the th just Thanksgiving. And I was like talking to my mom and my mom's always like in, in her, she's like got a thing in her head and she doesn't know how to like describe it well. So it's like a very different style to be able to like reflect on what you did and then make a critical like adjustment so that it's better the next time you make it. So, you know, that kind of got me going. And at the same time, I was like, I want to get out of the advertising and start a food truck. So it was sort of my way of like building a brand, you know what I mean? Like blog, WordPress was a thing. So it was like, get start a blog, build a brand, build it into a business. That was sort of the, the idea. So I did a lot of moonlighting in advertising until we got a permit with the Parks Department, New York City Parks Department. Like getting a permit to do a food truck in New York, kind of like a black market for a lot of trucks. They're like the similar to medallion, like the taxi medallions. They only offer a certain amount and they're very expensive. It's very ambitious. Uh, yeah, well, I wanted to do it in a legit manner and I didn't want to pay for the, the token. So my strategy was to get parks department permits, like a legal permission by New York City to operate outside of certain New York City parks. And when we got it, I was like, okay, we didn't have funding to do it. Like I had a business plan, New York City had approved us. And it was like, now I had to get the money so that I could quit so that I could start the job. Thankfully, my mom had a solution. Unfortunately, like in that time, my grandfather had passed away, but he had a life insurance policy that my uncle and my mom had split. So my mom gave me her share of the life insurance policy, which was like $55,000 and which was just enough to start the food truck. And so we took that and we opened Amazing. the food truck. And with like $500 in the bank on day one, we opened the truck in New York City in the fall of like September, right? So we had about two good warm months and then the winter hit, you know what I mean? And we didn't have like a big savings or cushion and we're waking up to like the, the sink having an icicle coming <laughs> out of it. And like, you know, things are frozen and they're, they're not functioning and you can't operate below 32 degrees in a lot of cases. And it's not even financially feasible to, in some cases, you know, you're serving like a 20 customers or something. It's like, so a lot of times we kind of just rode out like January and, fe and February. And we did a, a lot of things like Occupy Financial, the like Deutsche Bank building, the Citigroup building. We were able to kind of work out a deal where we would rent a, a station in their cafeteria and do like a pop-up. We would do like balmy sandwiches in them. They were like quick to put together. It was a grilled cheese truck. I don't know if I mentioned it was a grilled cheese truck, but that took a lot of time to melt and it wasn't like a fast, efficient sort of thing. So we decided to like come up with another concept that was fast. Everything was sort of prepped. It was kind of just throw it together and we did a bomb. So we did bombies and people loved it. And we, you know, we were able to get through winters and stuff like that. And we, 
would do governor's ball and electric zoo with both of those concepts. So like two different operations over three days with like these different concepts. And, you know, we just made it, we just got by. And eventually I had like a little falling out with some of my partners and we moved, I moved on and got into production, right? Like an advertising friend knew what I was doing. I got into food and was like, Hey, can you like uh, stage photos for a hummus brand? And so I would like, you know, take photos of hummus with a crudite stage, like a holiday with like little things and stuff for social media. And I was like, oh, I guess a lot of these brands don't have, like I worked in an ad agency. They don't have kitchens. Companies likely don't have kitchens to make, like no, they don't have infrastructure to create the content that I know they need on a regular basis. So essentially I, I was like, hey, I could provide the know-how and infrastructure to produce short little content that you're going to need for Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. And, you know, they paid me like $250 for a photo or like a group of variations of a, a certain scene or photo. And I was like, Hmm, maybe I can like put something together here. And, and I, you know, I'd gain a few clients, lose some clients, gain a few clients, pick up video as that became a thing and like cheap enough for me to use and my computer could handle it charged more gain some clients, lose some clients. And, and the flaw in my, that business was, I was, it didn't matter how good the thing I was giving them is they would then post on their social media and not know like how to, what to do. Right. They just like posted it and like nothing happened. You know, there was no push. There was no sort of like understanding of how to actually promote it. And a lot of these brands weren't very sophisticated in the way that they'd use social media. So their brand managers would be like, look, we're paying this money and we're not getting any results from it. And I was like, hmm, like this isn't working really because I kind of have to be the turnkey solution. So after I, I, like I eventually I had grown, I picked up a big client. It was a pasta company and pastas are like regional, right? So it's like a, the same actual pasta in different branded boxes that are sold throughout the country under different names. And so I would do work for all of them. And it was like a big deal. It was like $10,000 a month, which was like, like an out of control amount of money for me at the time. Hell yeah. And, and so I had that for two months in December, they hired a new VP of marketing, halted all operations. And I know what that means. Like whenever, if a new person comes in, everyone is gone. And so I was like, shit, it's like, uh, this isn't working. And then a month later I was engaged uh, six months away from getting married. And then that failed. So like my whole life sort of fell apart. And I moved back home after like a few weeks of sort of wallowing around. I sort of needed to do something. And I had read this Gary Vaynerchuk book, right? When, when I started the blog, that was like the reason I started the blog, like way back in the day. And then he had just released like serendipitously right as I was depressed, a new book that was like a reflection on the old book, right? That was like people like me who just had taken what he had written in the first book and then applied it into like these ridiculous businesses that I was like getting annoyed at. Like, how did they put, how is this a business? And I looked back on my experience and I was like, I have a food experience. I have the production ability, um, sort of like the eye with the camera, the editing skill. And I'm like 36. So at the time I was like 31, 32. Like, I'm not a young idiot, right? Like, I have a, an, a perspective. Like, I have experience. I have, like, opinions on things and that I could sort of shape some sort of show or content around. 
in sort of creating this pure expression of me. Like I had nothing to hold me back at this point, but I was like, I, I didn't have rent, right? My parents were very supportive and their kitchen was the kitchen that I started the show in. And it just happened to be the perfect, like it was just so perfect in every way. And so I was unleashed, right? To just focus solely on a thing in my head and to just try and like get it to a place where I was like, huh, this is good. I didn't talk at all. Uh, in the beginning, I was just like cutting vegetables and cutting them up and putting different like kind of videos together, trying to like, it was more like screen testing. At some point in the first, like middle of the first year or end of the first year of the show, I was like, huh, that is the same user experience you had when you came to me on the food truck and like ordered a sandwich and chatted with me. I would sit there while the sandwich is made. I would talk, I would lean over, I would talk to you and like, it was the closest digital sort of recreation of that. And, and there was something there that I liked about it. It was a very personal. It felt like you were sitting on, the, on a chair on the other side of the counter while we cooked. And there was something I really liked about that vibe. You get to understand how like little changes start to flesh out a, a, a personality that is unique to you and your show. And that was the fun of like year one and year two. And even today, like I'm always still just, tweaking little things so that I'm like more able to fully realize the thing that's in my head. I have a, a successful thing, but it's not fully the, it's not yet the fully realized thing that I want. Like I, it's, I'm trying to close the gap of what I think is like perfection, which is like a, a lofty goal I'll never achieve, but always trying to, you know, it's, it's just like a impossibility, but it keeps pushing you forward. And I'm trying to fill that gap between like my skill sets and my like mental maturity industry and like how I understand it and how I'm able to like edit a video to get your, your attention. What are the mistakes those people are going to make? How can I figure those out first rather than get the comment? Hey, I made your recipe and they came out like this, right? Like I, I learned when I was making like Italian pastas, they're like, why did my cacio pepe clump up? The same comments over and over and over again. So it was like, how do you prevent those questions from even being asked? For me, the whole, my whole show is designed to speak to people who think they can't cook. And it's like, you could just make people believe that it is not so hard. And you do that by just showing them a complete thing and, and not skipping over things that will screw it up for them, right? When you're telling this is the point you could screw this up, but instead do this. They're like, hmm, it just gives them the tools and the knowledge to be like, by the end of watching my video, I, this is my goal, you know, I don't always nail it probably, but the hope is that by the end of watching my videos, the least confident, the lowest skill level cook, anybody should be able to feel like they can do it. If my intent is solely focused on the user who's going to be making that, then maybe that gives me an edge or maybe that makes me unique a little bit. Maybe that's my little superpower. Yeah, I'm curious about how you select your ingredients and what are some techniques for beginners? If there's a, another thing that my show is sort of emphasizes is ingredients. I think that like you, if you just like shop different, like if you considered yourself like, as a home cook, like Christmas is coming. If you approached it the same way a chef approaches procuring ingredients for his restaurants, then everything you're doing to everything you just bought you don't have to like muck it up with a bunch of nonsense. Everything you got was so premium and good that you just need to like kind of dress it and, and make it shine and not screw it up. 
a lot of what I teach is shopping for better ingredients, looking for better ingredients, talking about the ingredients, what to look for when you shop. My mom has gotten into the point in her life when, you know, we'll make apple pie, she'll just grab the apples. And I'm like, can we just like look for the, like, let's feel, are they like damaged? Like, you know what I mean? Like I may be obsessed too much about it, but it's like, that's me. I do think on some level though, like paying attention to the quality of things matter, right? Like pasta, there's two types of pasta. There's pasta that is extruded through silicon molds and one and pasta that's extruded through bronze molds. The silicone is cheaper and faster. So lower quality pasta brands choose that. I won't name any, but you can do your research. And then higher quality pastas and the more traditional way of making pastas is a slower push through a bronze dye that creates texture and allows starch to get released into the sauce and for the sauces to cling to it. Things like this make a difference. you got to be a little interactive, right? Like, what do you want? And then you ask a guy to help you find it or to help you create it. They can cut you an extra thick piece if, you, if they can't. Maybe they can, maybe they can't, but you never know if you ask. And then you never know how long meat's been sitting in like those packages of plastic and all that kind of stuff. So it's like the freshness of stuff. Do you buy your vegetables, your broccoli pre-cut in a plastic bag? Or do you go and do you feel the broccoli? Do you feel if it's firm or if it's soft? You know what I mean? And when do you buy the soft one or do you buy the firm one? You know what I mean? Do you think about these things? Like th that's a lot of the, the things that I like to teach. You know, just getting the most of your money. Like don't, don't go buy shitty things that like, well, they're already halfway rotten. And then you put them in your fridge for a day. And then they're gone. You know what I mean? You can't use them the next day because you bought something that was old to begin with. And I know this doesn't work for a lot of people, but like if I go into a store and like things aren't looking good, I go to a different one. Some store has the meat that I want, but they don't have the vegetables. I know it's not necessarily realistic in every scenario for everybody's family. You know what I mean? Like I understand a lot of people, why a lot of people shop at Costco for a lot of things. I personally don't. I think their saran wrap is the best it's the only reason I go to Costco. And when I'm there, I might pick up a few other things, but I really just go for their saran wrap. What about tools? How important are your cooking tools? Pans are really important. If you don't have good quality pans, it really does impact. I have all of my pans here. Now I go and cook for the holidays at my parents' house, which I used to shoot at and have all of my pans there. So now when I use theirs, like really kind of crappy, non thin nonstick pans versus the ones that I use. You don't retain a lot of heat when you need, you know what I mean? Like things like that matter. You don't need a Vitamix blender. You know what I mean? You can get a cheaper one. It might be a little frustrating, but like you can bang it out. You can bang stuff out properly with like cheaper tools, but some things you need. My knife that I've used in every video for 300 videos is $30 Victorian ox knife. So it's like, I am very intent in what I showcase, right? Like you need a good knife, but a good knife doesn't need to be $200. And if you're not going to care for a $200 knife or you don't know how to, then don't even get it. Just get this. This is great. I've used this my whole life. It's fine. It looks fine. It's a knife. Spending $500 to get set up that will last you for your lifetime, maybe you get a more complete wider set and you love to cook. You spend a thousand dollars. There's a lot of these great brands like Sardell, Made In, Misen that offer the quality of like an all clad, which is like 
what people consider the highest end. It's just a brand. They just are like aluminum stainless steel pans with aluminum core. That's sort of the gold standard of like an everyday skillet or a frying pan. And they just have a great brand name. Pick up them, right? How does the handle feel in your hand? Is it round? Does it kind of wobble if it's round? Or does it have edges that kind of give it more stability? Like things, does it have an offset handle? How does it feel in your hand? How heavy it is it? You have to make these decisions. And like, these are the things that I sort of decide. Pan is expe- it is something you should spend money on. And you should have an eight inch chef knife, a paring knife, and a serrated bread knife. Those are only, really the only three knives you need. You need some like kitchen shears, lots of spoons, you know, uh, wooden spoons, whisks, spatulas, stuff like that. And then outside that, you really don't need anything crazy. Like for the first two years of the show, like I didn't even use kitchen aids. Like I would use a, a electric hand whisk. It was like, I kept it as low tech as possible. I'm also interested in what kind of equipment you use on the production side. And has that changed? Uh, it's about to. I'm sort of fed up with everything. I mean, I've had everything for a, way too long. If I'm doing the shows coming up on four years and I had gear. I've had my gear almost eight to 10 years. Once the show was up and running, when I was doing the production, I was more a gearhead. You know, I just figured out how to do it. And I had my stuff. And, you know, once things were going, I didn't care. I was like, I, I don't care what camera I have. Like, just don't screw up the show. I intended on not having overhead angle in my show because at the time, the BuzzFeed hands and pans style of cooking shows was the predominant cool thing to do. Overhead, hands working, no face, a minute and a half spent through it. It was just like a sterilized version of culinary education. I didn't want that angle, but after doing the show, I realized my two axis kind of camera setup didn't get any kind of over, like some things needed an overhead angle. I realized that pretty quickly and I didn't want to set up like an A-frame, right? Like a typical setup for overhead rig. And I didn't want to put GoPros on my head or whatever and fuss around with that because like you're on camera. So I found a GoPro mouthpiece and then I stick it into my mouth like that. I can see the screen and I can adjust it. And then I can use my head like a a gimbal. If I need a shot, I can pop it in and then I can pop it out. No friction. And so that was the biggest adjustment I made up to the show once it started in terms of gear outside of my Sony a7S, which is my A camera and my Canon 5D Mark three, which is my B camera shooting in 60 frames per second so that I can use it mostly as a slow-mo camera. And then I just have some, you know, pancake lights that I use and that's about it. And now I'm at the point where I really just needed an upgrade, right? Like I, I need to like make some investments into the show, but I just don't know anymore, right? Like it's been four years out of the game of like keeping up with gear and I don't know what I need next, right? So I'm like talking with a lot of these young kids, camera guys, editors, and I'm like gonna try and bring somebody in and be like, okay, how? what's a good, what do we wanna do here? You know what I mean? Like let's sort of maintain the, the real vibe of my show, but how do I just kind of dial in all of the kind of gears and the color and the look and 4K, let's kind of like get things a little spruced up a little bit. 
That's so cool. I saw on your website that you're potentially looking for producers who want to make content with you. Is that true? I'm always looking for people who can help. I'm at the point now where I'm very acutely aware that I don't, A, want to do everything alone anymore, and I'm not good at everything. And sometimes you doing everything like means you're doing most things like pretty badly. And so I want to figure out like the things I'm not doing well and get those off my hands and put them in the hands of people who can do them well and try and just create a little more structure, right? Like I would like to grow. I'd like to bring people in. That's my biggest struggle now is how do you do that? Like, how do I train an editor? I don't even understand. I don't even know where to begin in that process. And there's a lot of internal, you know, like the way that I talked about my process, like there's a lot of me in my head, you know, sitting in bed, thinking about the thing I just did, like, and then thinking about the way I'm going to edit it. And then the voiceover, you know, like, I'm not going to sit down and write all this shit. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's got to linger in my head, and then it's got to just come out. I don't know how to like, unless somebody's with me asking questions, the whole process, right. And like, they're sort, we're sort of on a level. That if I were to say, hey, we did this, that, and the other thing, they're like, oh, I get it. Versus somebody who's like remote, who I ship footage to. And I'm like, hey, this, that, and the other thing. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they have to like scan through four hours of footage. It's like, it's it's not going to work for me. And then it's going to be more work for me to be like, hey, why did you take this thing out? You didn't leave it in? Like, that was obviously an important thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a lot of struggle that I've dealt with in trying to get there. Have you tried to give up control and just... I giving somebody ago. the free reign yeah i mean i never even got to the point where it was like even a discussion to give up free reign it's like all tests it's a very difficult thing you know there's like a an intent to these right it's not making a video i i, I get you know this commodity of making videos but if you have a youtube show and an audience it's a very intimate thing where like i know the sensitivities of my channel if an editor is not attuned to those things it's hard to find talent to work with because unless you've done this for a while I mean I've done this for four years like I'm just I could just probably get hired just with some personally if like everything failed and I had to go work for another YouTuber I could be like hey I, I get this like I can do this that I'm like you know what I mean like it, it takes that much experience and not a lot of people have that so to like place the trust in, in somebody I'm having a hard time doing who hasn't done this experience directly, who hasn't had this experience directly, but I got to figure that out. You know what I what mean? What would like, you want to outsource? And when did you tune into that sensitivity of your audience? Once you get any success on YouTube, you, under, you start to realize the sensitivities and they sort of evolve over time. So you're always sort of adjusting and being tuned to like the sensitivities of your audience and of YouTube's algorithm. What things you've trained YouTube to understand about you and how to not screw that up. Like I did YouTube shorts earlier this year on my main channel and it was a big discussion. Do you start a second channel or do you do it on your channel? And I bet on the fact that they reward you for using a new feature. But what I didn't understand, what I understand now is I trained their algorithm. In the world of algorithms, you are training them to understand something about you. And when it's, it works, you know, you're in like a little bit of a kind of a, a tornado that you're just riding, right? Like you're just trying to keep riding that wave. And then when you do something that like 
confuses the algorithm, like say put one minute vertical videos on your channel, as opposed to 13 minute horizontal videos. And those videos are getting like millions of more views than your other videos. Then YouTube is like, oh, he's now a vertical shorts channel, not a long form horizontal channel. And so that screwed up my channel for a while. I was getting like suggested by like shorts channels in India rather than like the, the main players in the food space on YouTube that you would want to be suggested by, you know, the people who consistently get the most views in food. So I saw that as a big problem, but you know, you can always solve these issues. So that's the thing that's fine. But really last year, I really wanted to hire somebody and I kind of made some attempts, but, and then I got really discouraged. I was really getting used to the ebb and flows of the money, the, the money aspect of YouTube, right? Like I ended last year, like, oh my God. And then January crashed, right? Because ad revenues change, like there, there's a, a seasonality to the ad revenues. It's like a buildup towards the end of the year. And then January, February, it's like crashes, brands hold back. They plan for the coming year. And so like, it's not like the same amount of money every month, you know, it's something that's reliable. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. And so I've only been making money in you on YouTube for like, let's say I've done this for four years. I've been making real money for two. So I don't have a lot of historical data as to what a year looks like. How does that um, work? Like, I know you have to have a thousand subscribers to start getting monetized and 4,000 hours of watch time, right? Then what happens? Then you start to share in YouTube's ad revenue. So whenever they run an ad, you get a, I don't know what this split is. It's like a 60-40 split or something like that. You have control over like the placement of your ads. I think now it doesn't matter whether you opt in or not. YouTube's just running ads on your channel anyway. And so, you know, a lot of people, when they start their channels, they're like, I don't want to monetize my channel yet. I want to like, just kind of grow it. I was like, I think YouTube's kind of just throwing a wrench in that anyway. And like, whether you monetize or not, they're going to run an ad and make money from it regardless. So you might as well just monetize it anyway. If you can, you realize that like your subscribers don't matter. It's all your views when it comes to how much money you make. So you could have a million subscribers and get a hundred thousand views a month, not make a lot of money. Or you can have 100,000 subscribers and get 5 million views a month and make a very good living. It was really interesting to sort of see how you grow. Like for me, the ad revenue sort of was like a compounding interest. Over time, the more videos you post that are monetized, the floor sort of starts to grow. So it's like that ebb in the flow. I'm always concerned, what's the floor? Right, because that that's always the most painful time of year, where it's like the February or whatever, that lowest month of ad revenue that you're gonna feel. Like I'm always like, let's get that higher to a point where, like, even if it hits that number, I'm like, that's fine if we hit it, and then we'll, we know we'll go back up. Over time, you start to be like, your strategy's paying off, right? Two hundred videos, three hundred videos, they're all monetized, all earning money, all constantly getting views in the background, the passive income. My job is always just be like, let's build out that library of extracting value now through ad revenues and brand deals. But in the future, I can extract value through licensing and building a, a real big library of content that, you know, somebody would 
is going to want on some platform eventually as they need content going forward. And so there's like a lot of different strategies. And like, I thought one of the, one of the coolest realizations I had was like, hypothetically say YouTube never goes away and I'm a, a grandfather and I pass away and I have kids and grandkids. It's like they are going to still get YouTube checks long after I die, if it's still around, or maybe I'm on a different platform and I'm, my videos are monetized that way. And when I'm dead, like my kids are still getting paid from videos I did today. So, I mean, like even for small channels, like I think we're entering in a phase where like you could be a very small channel, you know what I mean? Like a Midwestern mom. I'm a small a channel. channel. Yeah. Yeah. And you can earn a few thousand dollars to a month, $10,000 to a month. If you can just sort of like hone in a strategy, figuring out like how to monetize in today's world where like nowadays like sure a lot of people have millions and millions of views but over time like there's going to be a, like a fragmentation of media right where it's like instead of watching nbc cbs all these networks like somebody might view me as a network and you as a network and they're the person at the network and they're just searching through their their channels watching their content i watch basically 90 percent of my youtube on my television on my 50 inch television like i it's a great experience for me and like everybody yeah. it's like different channels that you're flowing through and sometimes it's a podcast sometimes it's a, a two three minute like informational kind of hit quick hitting show sometimes it's news it's like oh uh, this rich landscape of of all sorts of like a it's like if it's what tv should always have been it doesn't matter like i'm doing a hot cocoa video there's fifty thousand hot cocoa videos that are, are on the internet right now i think a lot about how i would do it different like what am i going to say how can i a different angle on it but at the end of the day i could have just made four ways to make hot chocolate the american the italian the french and the mexican and could call it a day and put my personality on it and people would enjoy it and i would have earned ad revenue and you know what i mean and that's a thing that's a thing that you can do now everything i've seen in my life does somehow and i i think not just for me but for anybody is like the puzzle piece, right? They're all little miniature puzzle pieces that get slotted into place along the course of your life. And then you wake up one day and you are who you are. Was I directly influenced from all of that? Like I definitely draw more from my mother in a lot of ways, business side and like the kind of the way that I was into advertising definitely got from my dad. Their influence obviously was uh, apparent in my life. But yeah, to, to me, it's just all about the totality of everything, right? Like that's where the fun comes from is like, how does everything influence you? And how can you take something from everything? Maybe there's nothing, right? Maybe you thought you, you checked it out. It's like, is there something there? Yeah, there's nothing there. That's fine. And then you move on to something else that could then inspire you in a different direction. I went to this club in LA. It was like a 70s speakeasy. It was like this club called Good Time Davy Wayne's that was like the most fun place ever. They transport you directly into the 70s. It's like stepping into boogie nights. And that has inspired me for weeks. I, I went like a few months ago. I think Kevin stopped thinking about it. And it's like, I did a Sunday supper pop-up. The way that I now approach that is now heavily influenced by that experience. It's just, I lean into it. You know, it's like, I may have like over-exaggerated my love for that experience to like ponder it more. Yeah, yeah, like so what I, other things I, I have you, really, you tried that either inspired you or you were like, ah, eh, nah, that's not for me. 
I watch a lot of stuff that is not food content and podcasts, comedy stuff. I'm, I'm re- comedy is my probably my biggest love outside of food in terms of like a day-to-day thing that brings me joy. I like most days will wake up listening to something funny on YouTube, which is like a funny contrast to what I woke up to when I ran a food truck, which was constant panic and stress and mania. You know, I was with somebody at the time and I, I, that would rub off on them. You know, this first thing in the morning anxiety. And now I often am laughing first thing in the morning. And it's like, that is, I was driving to Starbucks and it's like a lot of times is when I'll listen to something in my car, or like a podcast that's funny. And I was like, I'm laughing. I was like, this is interesting. Like the mindset laughing puts you in first thing in the day has an interesting, similarly or inversely, it has an effect that it is inverse to what waking up stressful does to the rest of your day. You know what I mean? Like it sets the tone of like stress and panic, like what I would then carry with me to the food truck. Whereas now if I'm like kind of laughing and I'm relaxed and calm, that is the vibe I enter for the rest of the day. So I get a lot of inspiration from comedy, watching podcasts, the way comedians handle podcasts. Like the, the best podcasts in the world, in my opinion, are comedians podcasts. It was interesting when I picked up a camera for the first time, right? And I was like, I'm, I was always using it. And I didn't really, I, I knew I had an eye for it. And like, once I figured out the settings, right? It was like three settings, aperture, shutter speed, and, and ISO. Once I got down that down, it was just your view, right? It was just photography is your, the, your perspective, right? Where, the way that you, the angle of the camera, the lighting, all those things. So when I walked around the world, I realized like, oh, my eyes are just cameras. I think that way of like looking at everything as like a photo was like a a way of helping me shift to thinking about like inspiration. And when I ran my food truck, when I went out to dinner in the city, a lot of times I was probably annoying as hell to go out with (laughs) because I was being critical, right? I would go into be like, it's very loud in this restaurant or this wasn't that good or this, that, and the other thing. And I didn't mean to do it to be annoying and judgy and to like shit talk the restaurant. I was doing it as an act of critical thinking. If my, how would I make my restaurant less loud if I was sitting here and I'm thinking this is loud? You know what I mean? Like I can't hear you. I'm sitting now as a customer. How can I take that as a learning experience and then apply it to maybe the restaurant I opened? Me judging the hell out of it, any experience I could was practice. It's like I might have loved the restaurant, but I was complaining to whoever I was eating with as a, an act of like doing some internal exercise for myself, which I look back, I'm sure is annoying, but you know, it, it is, it's what I used to do. It was like sort of the same idea. It's like there's something to be taken from every experience, like every meeting, every conversation. Like, what is that thing? Like, there's no coincidence here. Like there's something that I got to take away. Maybe I take it to some extreme, but like it served me pretty well in my life. And how can things be just a little bit better or different? I like that. Right. Okay. So I have one question for my 13 year old. He wants to know if you know how to make beef Wellington. I think I've made it once. I'm sure I could make it. I, I, I never really understood. I was never like a big beef Wellington guy. I liked filet mignon. We ate that a lot. We're going to wrap it with the, the mushrooms and the prosciutto. And the, I was like, is this really going to make it better? And so like, I, I never like, wasn't a thing that I ever sought out to like perfect or do. I can make it and I probably will make it for the show. 
I've been more interested in making like short rib Wellingtons. So like braised short rib, you wrap that in the thing. Why mess with the temperature of a perfectly cooked filet mignon, wrapping it and doing that whole, like just short ribs are perfectly cooked already, wrap it up, bake it. It's a perfect, that, that to me is like the ideal version of a, a beef Wellington. Cool. Yeah. That was his one question. And I was thinking since the holidays are coming up, like what would be like a romantic dish that I could try to attempt for like my husband? For Christmas is always to me like more of a steak dinner meal. You know what I mean? Like Thanksgiving is a very specific meal. My approach to Christmas is always like steakhouse meal. Prime rib or not a lot of people love filet. I like filet mignon. Filet mignon with a beautiful like reduction sauce. Port wine is a very Christmassy spirit. It's sweet. It's a dessert wine, but it makes a great sauce. And it's like a classic sauce at Christmas. So you make a really great beef stock. You get some port wine. You reduce the port wine to a glaze. Pour in the beef stock. You reduce that to a glaze. It becomes this thick thing. You dot with butter. You pour it over a perfectly cooked steak with some simple like cream spinach and maybe like a potato twice baked potato I'm, I'm i'm thinking of doing this year or like mashed potato and you keep it really simple some little potatoes some spinach the steak with a really perfect sauce like for me the fun of the holidays is the stock and the sauce or the gravy that is a work of art right like the turkey's good like this year was my best turkey i've ever made and the meats are always fine but like if they were not fine if you screwed up the turkey or you screwed up the meat the sauce is the thing that is like the savior. Everyone's like, wow, that sauce is incredible. Like it's just that much of a show-stopping thing. So just doing those few simple things, I think that would be, and that can be scaled down to like two people or scaled up to 10, you know what I mean? So it's like a good approach to the holiday. Do you cook for your family for the holiday? Both, yeah. Nice. Thanksgiving and Christmas. Aw. Been doing it for about like 10 or 15 years. My, you could tell my mom was getting it like, not like not into it, but just like it was harder to put as much care into it as she used to. And then my brother and I are cooks. We got I young, saw your brother's a cook on your Instagram. Do you guys like tag team stuff? Well, he was one of the partners on my food truck. Mm. So we did a lot of that together. We did, he helped me with the Sunday supper recently. And yeah, so like we we basically took over the holidays and my mom still helps. Like she like wants that do a few things and not go crazy, but she doesn't want to like not be a part of it. But like we kind of, my brother and I kind of make sure it runs the day of I'm basically in the kitchen doing the timing. You know what I mean? Like I'm the best at the timing, right? Like I don't like it when we say we're going to eat a certain time and then you get drunk and then it takes, I was like, yo, you forgot it. You have to cook, right? You know what I mean? That's the hard thing about hosting and cooking, right? You have to like get people to your place early enough so that you can enjoy some time with them before you have to start cooking. Every year is like a refinement. You get a little better at it, right? The timing and what you do, what you don't have to do. And I think it's like a fun, it's a, it's fun to just not do it for work, right? Like cooking that is not for work now is like a fun thing. That is a rare thing now. Right? Like, can you just throw something together that you're not making a video about? Are you like constantly thinking about maybe I should shoot this? Yeah, and if I'm not testing, it's like I'm maybe kind of exhausted. I might order out or something, you know. What I find is as soon as it got cold, like this summer, I was 
only shopping from farmer's market. I was like running three miles a day. Wow. And then I got cold and I stopped exercising and started eating fried fatty foods and like warm stews and pastas. And like, I just, some, a, a light switch turns on and I just eat totally different when at this time of year. What I think happens is like my willpower that I'd held for 10 months in the year or 11 months all year, just break in November. In the winter, like yeah. A week before Thanksgiving, it's like you it's just get, just, you're not going to win this battle. So just stop fighting it. And then in January, you can kind of like regroup. Do you think you'd ever want to produce other people's channels or? I thought about it. I'm very open with like chatting or helping anybody if I can, or if they, they'd like some advice or help, or especially if you're serious and like you're good. I mean, like if, if you're not good and you really want it and like my kind of advice like won't really make, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how, I don't know about like, you know, answering everyone's question about that, but like, if you've got something and you're curious and you're asking the right questions, like I'm happy to spend like ample amounts of time, like answering questions. Like, so generous I'm very generous. That's why I can't do it with anyone. Like it's got to be somebody who I, I want to do it with because then we'll talk for like two hours and then I can actually like maybe tell you something that might have an impact that might move the needle for you. Okay, so tell um, me what better Paul Daddy can do better. What's your mission? What's, what's my the, mission? What's the reason for your show? Oh, that's a good my, question. The reason for my show, and I figured this out fairly early on. And I needed it so that it would mo it would drive my actions. Like, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it is to ensure that more people are cooking today than there were yesterday and with confidence. Every act on the show then becomes like sort of in service of that, right? Like, a, am, I, am I thinking enough about the recipe and the end user? Because then if I'm not, I'm not really fulfilling the mission of my show. And so like that real purpose mission, like, don't just say like, I'm going to help people cook, like go out of your way to show you're going to do it better than others. Every day I wake up, I'm like, all I have to do is that. Whatever it says video has to serve that purpose, whether if it's a recipe or maybe it's not a recipe, but it should serve that purpose in some way, whether it's like talking about an ingredient that would then allow them to make better food or make them feel more confident in their ability to make a particular recipe that requires it you know what i mean so it's like if you're if you had a thing that was a, a driving force right a reason for your show existing is to to scratch the curiosity that is within me you know what i mean like in terms of like creators or whatever it is that you could come up with that you really think is the essence of why you do what you do then i think that starts to like help clear things up like it puts you on a path and then you know like sort of what you need to do to help further yourself along that path if that makes sense definitely I like that to me this is like when we're talking about careers and how grateful of a career this is it's like you can't burn out right you can't go to Wall Street and burn out you can't go to your marketing job and burn out you can't go to your accounting job and burn out like if you're burning out then you're not really like taking this approaching this like a serious career I think over time like those, those things will sort of like work themselves out but um it's a fortunate career and you know you, you shouldn't you should know where you're going here like once you're there you should really take time to figure out where you're going 
and why you're doing what you're doing. And you'll never, the, the struggles and the slowdown and the speed bumps, the ebb and the flows that I were talking about, like you're able to ride them out. I like it. Is you're there anything that you would out. like to ask my dad? What's his favorite thing to eat? I love it. You know what? I don't even know that. Although he definitely has a sweet tooth. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Good. Well, you have to tell me. I will. I will. Steven, this has been amazing. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I am so happy. I'm going to give Briner a little shout out here that he connected us. Very yeah, he's, cool. uh, he's the man. Yes. I am so glad that he reached out to you because that happened on our conversation together. So thank you. Promote yeah. away. Please let people know all of the places where they can find your amazing recipes and work. Not another cooking show on YouTube. You can find me on Instagram at the food freak with two K's. I'm not another cooking show on TikTok. I do sell a little holiday plan of attack. If anybody, if this is coming out before Christmas, if you need any, it's like an ebook. It's got some exclusive digital holiday content. And it's like the whole kind of approach that me and my family do have for the holidays. All of our family recipes, like the, the way we approach prep, and the days leading up to it and all that good stuff. So if you want, it's available on my website and people say the recipes are good. You know, I love I'm not it. Gonna toot my own horn, but I hear things. What's your favorite thing to make? Sticky toffee pudding. I've never even heard That's of that. That's my favorite dessert. It's big in London. It is like a date cake with like a toffee sauce on top. And it's just like warm and it's just that it's the right taste for the holidays. Amazing. I'm gonna have to check that out. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. And I'm wishing you a happy holidays. And since you threw in that last little bit about getting this out before the holiday, I'm going to work on doing that. Uh-oh. I put the pressure on. Well, I have a little leeway. So yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I've had a nice time chatting. Awesome. Now. Let's switch it over to Grandpa. What I found to be interesting is that he puts himself out there. He's always looking for answers and where he can get different midbits from whoever he meets and whoever shows he's on. And the funny part is, is that when you're working a job in advertising, he's working hard and he wants to move up in the company. <laughs> they, it's certainly a much longer road. If you are creative and you want to be involved, look how he has told you, you really have to learn to do it yourself. If you want to really ascertain something in life, being an entrepreneur, putting yourself out there and going for it is going to have the greater rewards. You have to be able to ride out the highs and lows of running a business, as uh, we've discussed before. But if you really want to have complete satisfaction with your work and your value of your work, you have to be able to do it yourself. Wasn't it interesting about the issue of editing a show? How can someone else know exactly the pieces that you want? You've got to be able to work with someone where they're on the same page with you. And yet at the same time, you can't do every job and we're not good at everything. So we do also have to be able to have a team of people, a good team of people, where they're able to contribute to your show and to his show. If you want to expand and grow, you have to have good people that can take the ball and run with it. I think that it's important to know your business, know where you're going, know what you're pursuing and learning from other people and finding other people 
that can enhance the business that you're in. I love that. All right. And I think he wanted to know your favorite recipe or favorite thing you like to eat. What I loved also about the food is that, isn't it also where you have to start off where you're not going to use rotten or not good food for the ingredients? If you want to be also a good chef, you have to have the best of ingredients and you have to be able to blend your recipes. And my favorite food is someone that knows how to really cook a really nice flavored meal. As you know, I have a sweet tooth, but when it comes to eating food, if somebody prepares me a really good dish and has a lot of flavor to it and it's well cooked and it's got the right spices in it and the right blend, I'll come over for dinner every day to change it all up, make a a beautiful variety. I think that's not only satisfying to me, but to to everyone would love that type of recipe where you can eat really good food, professionally prepared. And that's why he has an opportunity to not only do well with his podcast and his shows, if you're able to show that you can really put out a really good meal. I like how also he was part of a family business. His mom, his brother, and himself put it all together where they were able to feed off of each other and be able to really make something of it. And yet, just like advertising or business, they go through different cycles and it's uh, very, very easy to run a, a growing business, but you have to have the right cash flow as well. He got started with his grandfather's legacy, passing something on to his mom who passed it on to him. But that's just the beginning to have working capital. He found out the hard way that there's more to a, running a business than just making good food. You also have to have the right workflow. You have to have the right business. You have to have the right advertising. You have to have the right location. You have to have the right kind of help. You have to know your business. You got to know where you're headed. There's a lot to running a business, isn't there? Definitely. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 